Welcome to A Look at the Issues. A Look at the Issues is a policy podcast based here at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. It is researched and produced by students reading for a Master's of Public Policy. On this week's episode of A Look at the Issues, we follow on from our conversation last week on Brexit and talk to Damien Busselager, a member of the European Parliament for the Pan-European Party, Volt. We get his thoughts on Brexit and the fears that many people face right across Europe and the world about an uncertain future, which has led to an increase in populism. He also shares tips on how to start political movements and get elected. This is a look at the issues. I am not from a political background, as I said. And so when I came here, I just said, like, I'm going to just continue being me. Like, I don't want to change that. And um, it's true that the message is very much like, look, we could, you could be sitting here exactly like I, I am sitting here. This is, or you can do something else. You can change other stuff. But like, I'm definitely not like a professional politician. I just believe that we need to take our responsibility as citizens and yeah, that's voting, but that can also be to work towards the society that we want. And I can tell you that on the fringes, you know, people are definitely getting active or are very well organized to do that. On this episode of A Look at the Issues, we are in Brussels covering, you know what, Brexit on the eve of the UK leaving the European Union. It's Friday, the 31st of January. And we are joined by Damien Busselager, an MEP from Volt, um, talking about what Brexit means. Damien, welcome. Thank you very much. Now, Damien, just to get right at it, um, you know, having voted to leave the European Union in 2016, um, in what was, in some people describe the most historic vote in post-war Europe, um, Brexit has somewhat reshaped politics. Um, it has influenced a lot of the rise in populism and to a certain extent also disinformation that we've been seeing it. And on the eve of the UK leaving the European Union, I mean, away from the rhetoric around Brexit, um, what does Brexit mean for the European Union, for you, a European citizen, as well as an MEP? So I would fully agree if you say it's a historic and, and colossal mistake, that's absolutely clear. There's, I mean, so much uh, on on the emotional side, on the legislative side, like so many different layers to this uh, question. So uh, maybe I just tell a bit more on my personal experience and personal opinion to it. I think that makes more sense. So, I mean, I remember pretty clearly where I was in in 2016 when the when the vote, the referendum happened, and um, I remember also very clearly. And that's I think a second instance that I would always somehow combine um, is when, when the Trump vote happened, which is both for me instances where I for the first time felt, okay, you know, politics is not just going to go its way and either it leaves you alone or it's getting a bit better day by day, just like very slowly, there's obviously always something shitty, but, you know, I don't really have to care about it. I was working in the private sector. I didn't, I mean, I was politically interested, but I always thought, you know, it's something a bit more separate from my reality in a way. And I think many people felt that and if you see how party um, registrations are actually going down already for like two decades, three decades, and I think it shows it a bit like people get a bit disenfranchised with the party system and with politics in, in, in general. And for me that changed when these events happened because it for the first time felt as if it can actually have a really 
you know, negative effect and that it's not like a self-driving car that doesn't, you know, that just stays on the lane, but it could actually crash and hit a tree or something, you know? So that's, I guess, the, the emotional feeling I had, yeah, the feeling that I had. Yeah. And I mean, it was Wednesday on the, on the 29th of, of January when you had to say goodbye to, I mean, I guess some of your colleagues and perhaps also people that you became friends with. And how was that feeling in the European Union? I mean, we saw all these images with people singing outlining at Link. <laughs> Completely butchered that. You know, so like the text here. Old Lang Syne. Yeah. Old Lang Syne. Yes, I got to sing it. No. And you know, you had all these all these scenes in Parliament, very highly emotional, and like, in especially, in especially in a space where you, where you have to hold decorum. You know, it's a very august house, and we saw a lot of emotions um, from both the EU, sort of like the UK side, and also the UK side. Um, can you run us through sort of like how it felt sitting in that in that in that space? in that hall where the most historic event in post-war Europe was happening. The thing is, it's, it's not a separate event, no, it's an event after a range of events that started or were triggered, as you said, by the referendum in the first place and now somehow culminated in this, in this first really like irreversible, it seems, not irreversible forever, but like, like definite step of, of leaving. Yeah. And then I guess there will be at some point the, the future relationship agreement, which will then mark the end of this, this whole uh, madness. For me, um, it felt first just very sad because of the, the people that I know here and that I'm, if you want, losing, that I work with closely and that I build personal relationships with. And I think that is just a very, very sad thing. And then the second thing that I, that I thought was that I mean, now I have the choice between a hard Brexit or like an orderly Brexit, but that's a shitty choice, you know? You don't want to vote for any Brexit, but I had to vote. So it was clear that I would go for the orderly Brexit vote and say, okay, I'll, I'll vote for the withdrawal agreement that, that we have here. But if I could, I would obviously, you know, not vote at all on Brexit. I think part of the debates that we see now around Brexit is everything that happened post the referendum, um, the protracted negotiations, um, the hard deadlines about leaving that were shifted several times. Um, but I think if we look back at, say, 2016, the year's 2016, populism is on the rise. We, and we saw that with uh, Duterte in the Philippines. We saw that with Brexit. We saw that with Trump. Um, we saw that in Germany with the IFD and, and France with Marine Le Pen. Um, and I guess Brexit was just a symptom of something greater something that was inherently missing in our politics, where people perhaps felt that they were missing from the conversations from the key decisions that were being made. And there was that fear. So, I mean, there are many theories of what these, uh, you know, tectonic shifts are that we currently see in politics and, and why there's such an interest for populism. And I don't want to go in, like, in, into detail into that, but I mean, I think what's very clear is that we see huge changes, be it in the labor market due to digitization, the future of work, and like, uh, or in the energy sectors, you know, or like in the way we live and how we live as communities. There, there's a, a, really a range of things that are changing and that bring politics in, in the need to act. Because if you don't address these or, or somehow steer these changes, you will have, I mean, you will lose out in, in giving the citizens what they are currently looking for, some answers to their problems and to this really increased uncertainty. I think that's a very <laughs> short summary of what I feel. And that links perfectly, perfectly to the European Union. Because the European Union 
would be a really cool, let's say, level of where to solve many of these issues or where to find good answers and to uh, yeah, find common answers. And they're needed because these shifts are bigger than any single country. So, I mean, we can also look at climate change. Yeah? I mean, these are all top of migration. These are all topics that go beyond any single country and beyond borders. And so the, I think the EU actually had, was kind of in a good position to show that it's very useful and needed. But it was stuck. And it's stuck because the house is not like finished, you could say. There's uh, political processes which don't fully work as a functioning democracy, as a parliamentary democracy, as it should be. So I can give you some examples. I mean, uh, the, the sad thing is Nigel Farage always brings up these examples, but then comes to a different conclusion <laughs> than me. And I mean, and you also touched on, I think, two very key issues that have, in, in essence, also kind of like defined the, our post-2016 politics, which is sort of like a lot of those transnational issues that we face around essentially the fear and the uncertainty about the, what the world is going to look like. Um, and also migration. And I think um, if we are to trick the, with the, the rise in populism, what the common thread was between things like around Brexit and AfD, is that there was, this, there was this fear of an uncertain future. And you can say rightly or wrongly, immigration played a huge part in that, um, as well as sort of like the perception that people's living standards or social standards were falling. Um, but so like, and then looking at how how we've gone from 2016 with, with those very same fears what do you think the future of europe is going to look like um post brexit i think brexit is just one of the many things but with all those sort of like uncertainties what is how's the, the european project going to look like in say a year from now five years from now so my hope is that um, with brexit slowly becoming less of the priority topic that the remaining 27 member states can actually start fixing some of the things that need fixing um, so that we can somehow clean our own house and then maybe the Brits can do the same and at some point we can uh, uh, you know we can come together again but there's a lot that we need to do um, I'm very happy that there will be now a conference on the future of Europe where, where citizens are invited to discuss about this as well so hopefully this will be a, a big event across Europe where we can not only hear my voice but like the voice of many but I mean as you said, there are many topics. Uh, migration is, uh, I think, a key one because it, sh it shows many of this, the problems that we currently have. First of all, it is an actual challenge. Um, there is really a lot to, you know, to do in terms of how to organize um, both labor migration or legal migration on the one side and, and like the whole asylum system on the other, if you want. I think there's a lot of uh, thinking to do. There's a lot of... Uh, you know, policy work, hard policy work with really uh, yeah, hard choices to be done. Um, and at the same time, it somehow creates, as you said, like triggers some fears with some people if it's not handled well. So my analysis, for example, of the 2015 German crisis, where which people call a crisis, but like well, uh, over a million people entered uh, Germany as asylum seekers, um, was that the amount, I think, wouldn't have triggered a crisis or like a perception that is negative in itself, but um, in themselves. But the fact that the German government wasn't really able to handle that or to manage it and to keep order 
in some form made a lot of people very wary about what was going on, saying like, oh, this is like dangerous and we're losing control, our government is losing control. And I think that is a bit um, uh, like one of the core problems of the whole debate. From my side, I think the first question that I would always ask uh, anyone who has to do, especially with asylum, is are you, you know, the term climate denier you know, or climate denier or climate change denier? So I think, are you a migration denier? You know, do you really believe that migration is not a fact of life and has been for thousands of years and that this will also increase given the, the developments all around Europe and within Europe as well with the aging society? So that's the first question. And the second is, do you want to uphold the um, right to asylum? Because sometimes when people speak also in this house i think my big question is like i mean you have some form of a choice and at least be honest about it do you want to actually give asylum to people who are who are fleeing and who need that and if if the answer is uh, both that no i'm not a, like a migration denier and second yes i want to uphold the right to asylum then you just need to organize it I would call it crisis for the people, definitely not crisis for Europe, it's crisis for the people who are in the shitty situations. I mean, I was in Lesbos before Christmas and to see how like a lot of people live in absolutely horrendous conditions, I mean, without shelter, without healthcare, already traumatized, sick. I mean, the camp there are now 21,000 people in a, with, I think, capacity for 3,000, yeah, so they're just living out there, half of them is... Uh, uh, minors and uh, it's just uh, it's like unbelievable that this would be on happening on the European continent, which is uh, you know faming itself for for high values and high standards. And it's absolutely incredible. And I think the first thing how you can talk to citizens is if you start being honest in your solution to yourself. Like, what do you think should actually be done? So I think we're going to come to a topic that's quite very interesting. And I think um, how old are you? What thirty one? member of the European Parliament, a spitz candidate for Wolf, and starting a new party from the ground up because you recognize that there's some sort of, there's something missing, inherently missing in our politics. Can you talk us through how you got to starting a political movement and sort of like what resources you need and how do you keep it, how do you maintain it and sustain that? Okay, so at first I think I have to say that I never thought I would join politics. I mean, I said it earlier in the beginning of the uh, conversation that I just wanted to do my my job, you know, like I wanted to work and whatever and earn some money and, and maybe discuss politics over a beer in the evening, but like I never really thought about joining. And that changed with the Brexit referendum and it changed uh, with the Trump election. I was actually in the US when um, when Trump got elected, I was in Hillary Clinton's campaign center. And so I saw how at first everybody was celebrating, Katy Perry was on the stage and like, you know, it was a huge uh, party and then suddenly the stage went empty, nobody came anymore and people started looking at the screens and then sitting down and then crying. Um, and for me that was definitely like another, another trigger. Um, and then I'm not sure if I would have done anything on my own, but I met this uh, crazy guy, Andrea <laughs> Venzon, who um has a, has a like a this capability of just uh, deciding on something in his mind and then just going for it and so i mean he started 
just saying, yeah, we need to do something. I'll build an Italian party, and then we discussed a bit and we said like maybe a European party would make more sense because we actually have European problems that we're not solving together. So that would be the right way. And then I mean, in the end, he said like, look, I'm going to invite you for lunch if you help me think about it. And then I mean, New York is quite expensive, so <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> it's so, like a free lunch instead of a movie. Yeah, it's not a free lunch in the end. There's never. <laughs> So yeah, and then I mean, uh, just and then Cologne was there and and started helping and uh, the uh, French woman and then we were just at it suddenly and I I think the reason even though I'm from my nature maybe a bit more skeptical the reason why I um, really liked it from the beginning was uh, one that there is in my circle of friends hardly anyone who's active in politics because it's just like too far from you. Yeah. And that is, I think, a problem that we think this is just like going on on itself and then we, you know, are annoyed, but we would never, I mean, in the evening, as I said, we would discuss over it with a beer, but you would never think that you actually have the power to change it because you never experienced that. So like it's too, that's the first. And then the second is that there is no European party. And what I also told you earlier that we have national interests represented extremely well on the European level. Where are the European interests? There's the Commission a bit, which is able to like propose ideas, but there's no citizen representation of European interest, and that is a huge fuck up. Because I mean, people now look to Brussels, also from the UK, and say, "Oh, Brussels fucked up. We don't get this. We don't get this." What they don't understand is their interior minister who's unable to align on a migration framework or European asylum system. It's their minister for whatever that is not giving any money to the EU to be actually able to invest in, in education or uh, these kind of things. Yeah, This is their minister who is unable to find a common ground on, on foreign policy or development uh, like uh, cooperation. I mean, this is it's always the national interest which is blocking the EU. And then people look at the EU and say, like, why isn't it functioning? And this needs to be fixed. And I think that is what I, I mean, looking at it, understood more and more that we are being represented in a like local way, in a regional way, and also on the national level. But there is no one really representing you with your European interests. And that's why then we started. <laughs> and then there's, I mean, a whole story I can tell you about how we did the first uh, posts on Facebook, which looked uh, crap. And, <laughs> and then I had the first... Uh, uh, you know, international voice uh, like telephone conference, and uh, the uh, the line had no dial-ins from like seven <laughs> of the countries where we wanted to <laughs> people to dial in from, and like, and we we constantly thought, okay, what? The, oh my God, what are we doing? Yeah. Or that from the first, uh, I think, a hundred people who signed up, probably only five stayed. You know, that is, uh, and I think it was a higher number, but like, there's a lot of um, realities of. Uh, the fact that you fail a lot, I guess, and you also, it's also not for everyone, um, but if you keep on pushing, and I think that's also my lesson from this whole uh, thing that I'm now sitting here at this strange desk in the European Parliament, is like, if you start something, something will happen. What I hope is that with Volt we manage to make the barrier to entry into politics smaller, and send the message like you can shape this movement in you know within our values in like many different ways and just bring in come in and be enabled if you want to use your initiative to to address a societal problem. I think that is a bit like the philosophy of behind what we are doing to organize ourselves to be stronger together in a community 
to uh, identify things that people on the street, as you said, the citizens like, yeah. are actually annoyed about and translate that into a targeted action and campaign. And that can be to get elected and be able to change stuff ourselves or to like create pressure on elected people to, to, to change. Also just coming from the fact that we are trying to disrupt this house a bit. Yeah? I mean, there's really cool stuff we're doing. We try to uh, turn this parliament into a bit more of a debating house um, or like to, to create a better debating culture because currently it's extremely boring to watch. I don't know if you realize, but it's like really it's the most boring. boring thing to do. And that also, talking about boring, can I also remark that we're sitting here in Damon's office and it's, well, we're not having a very boring conversation, but he's not wearing a tie, he's out in a hoodie. And I guess to show that's what you need, you know, to just cut across this sort of like this very stiffness that when you're talking about things like policy, there comes a certain aesthetic that you, that you must ascribe, subscribe to. And that can be alienating. So if someone can see you on, on TV talking about the issues, about these issues, and they can recognize the fact that, oh, I too wear a hoodie, or I too wear like a very elaborate scarf, and then I too can be in that space. I don't have to wear a very stiff tweed jacket. That, I mean, that's something tiny, but that, that's huge, right? And my parents want me to dress better, but... It's not listen to our parents. We've left the house. No, I think it's a, they make fun of me and send me photos of, of other parliamentarians and say, look, he's wearing a tie. <laughs> At least a jacket. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah, it's very... Uh, um, in a joking manner. But I think the... Um, it's, it's true that... I mean... I campaigned just the way I was and said, like, look, I think we need, really need to do this. I am not from a political background, as I said. And so when I came here, I just said, like, I'm going to just continue being me. Like, I don't want to change that. And um, it's true that the message is very much like, look, we could, you could be sitting here exactly like I, I am sitting here. This is, or you can do something else. You can change other stuff. But, like, I'm definitely not, uh, like, a professional politician. I just believe that we need to take our responsibility as citizens and yeah that's voting but that can also be to work towards the society that we want and i can tell you that on the fringes you know people are definitely getting active or are very well organized to do that so perhaps in way of closing um what would you say to a young damien perhaps not in a restaurant in new york but in uh, bucharest or in berlin or sitting in oxford um, what sort of like advice would you give them about how to get involved in politics and see the change that they want to see? Don't plan too much, do. I think that's uh, my, um, my advice. You can write uh, thousands of pages of concept. You can even write the best electoral program in the world or you know, the, the, whatever, the best theory about how you could you know, create a campaign that would change you know, Ursula von der Leyen to do X, Y, Z or like that would uh, you know, change Boris. But I think what was beautiful about the Remain campaign and what is beautiful about any form of action and political action is if you just go for it and see if there's a need and then do it. Right. Well, Damien, thank you so much. That's oh, yeah, and you can also join Bolt, obviously, if you want. <laughs> <laughs> <Do> you <joke? laughs> this is not a campaigning podcast. <laughs> go to the website. Um, <laughs> All right, then there is Damien Buselaga talking to us at a look at the issues around Brexit and then in general how to get involved in the change that you want to see and how you can start political movements that takes you to the European Parliament. And that's all we've got for you on this episode of A Look at the Issues. Join us next week when we'll be exploring ways of holding governments to account and how that's important for any functioning democracy. If you want to get in touch with us, 
follow us on Facebook and on Instagram at a look at the issues. And if you've got any feedback for us, please send us an email. We are on studentpodcast at bsg.ox.ac.uk. I'll leave you now with a snippet from our episode next week. That's it from me, Suta Kavari. Once a bad law passes through parliament simply because of a majoritarian, you know, government that's also in legislature and you and you can't can't do anything about it because of the way the numbers play out. Um and then it becomes law. What are the ways in which that can be challenged, right? So one of the ways is obviously the judiciary. You can challenge a law in court, but that obviously requires a lot of money, time, energy, expertise. Uh, but the other way in which you can build uh, public support momentum is the media. If you're not, uh, and it's an important way of connecting people in different contexts. I think us as a society, as governments, as different decision makers need to think about how media needs to be reformed or supported to really um, become reliable and, and trustworthy and, you know, through process, make, um, hold the governments accountable and make the public, uh, you know, able to also hold the governments accountable. If you like this episode of A Look at the Issues, you'll also like our other episodes. And you can find us on Spotify, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or really anywhere else that you find your podcasts. This is A Look at the Issues.